We're in our week three in our series in Colossians, and just look at that beautiful graphic that Rachel created, guys. Oh, man. Growing up, we're going to learn how to grow up together, okay? This is going to be a lot of fun. Today, we're going to talk about growing up within Christ. So we're going to focus on the end of chapter one and a little bit of the beginning of chapter two, where uh, Paul, so, so by way of introduction, Every one of Paul's letters are written to specific communities, which of course we know, but they're addressing very specific things that are going on. They're not generic texts about, you know, things that people everywhere should know about God. No, he's writing to specific groups of people that are walking through very specific trials or problems or difficulties in their community. And of course, the people know what's going on, so he doesn't always explicitly state, I am writing to address X, Y, Z. So for us to really get in and understand, we have to look at what he says and then look backwards and say, well, what might this be addressing? And so the book of Colossians is written to the people in Colossae, which unlike most of Paul's other letters, is a really seemingly insignificant community. It's not like Rome, you know, the book of Romans is written to Rome. And then there's Corinth and Ephesus, which are these big hub cities for trade and for culture, you know, LA, New York City-esque cities. And I had some of my extended family in here in first service, and I thought, you know, they're from Muskogee, Oklahoma. Colossae is a lot like that. (laughs) Colossae is a lot like Muskogee, Oklahoma. It's like, yeah, where? Who are these people? But a lot is revealed in this little letter that is really, really important for us today. A couple of things. One, Paul is writing about growing up in maturity in the way that we live with one another. And in today's text, he's specifically exalting Jesus and addressing this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And there are three threats that we can deduce are coming against the person and the nature of Jesus in this community. And one of those is the philosophical idea called syncretism. It's probably not a new word, but it is also probably a word that you don't use very often. Syncretism just means the blending of ideas, the blending of religious ideas. So syncretism is the idea of we'll take certain pieces from Jesus and certain pieces from Buddha in certain pieces from Islam or Mormonism or whatever, and we'll blend them together in a way that fits our own lives, in a way that helps us to self-actualize and become all that we can be. Or maybe for our society, the blending of self-helpism and the blending of nationalistic ideas with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. So this is the idea of syncretism, blending. It's not holistically one thing or another. It is the putting together of pieces in a way that benefits us. Two, another threat that is coming against for the occasion of who is the person of Jesus is this idea of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism believed that all matter, all flesh, physicality, things had all been so corrupted by sin and by evil that they were now inherently evil in and of themselves. So therefore, knowledge, revelation, wisdom is the higher level. 
that the things that are unseen are always more important than the things that are seen. And our goal as people is to get to a place of higher revelation. We'll see later in the book. Maybe Pastor Jade will preach a whole series on, or a whole uh, message on angels. Because Paul's going to talk a little bit about angels. And it's like, it kind of comes in in the passage, I think in chapter 2 or chapter 3. It's like, what in the world? Well, it is the idea that comes from Gnosticism that elevates angels. And as we're going to see here in just a moment, Paul addresses that, that Jesus created all of these things visible and invisible, and he's validating the earthly, fleshly creation, that it is not inherently bad. So Gnosticism is the second idea. And the third idea, or blending of ideas, that is coming against Christianity and a true understanding of Jesus is the religion of the empire that exalted Caesar as the lowercase s son of God. And this was perhaps the most prevalent uh, throughout the Roman kingdom. So there's these three conflicting, competing ideas. And Paul is setting out here at the end of chapter one, there is a poem or a hymn where Paul, everything that he says is pointed directly at confronting one of these ideas with the truthful idea of who Jesus actually is. So Jesus, who is Jesus? Paul's astounding claim that we're going to discover this morning is that Jesus reveals the character of God, the ways of God's kingdom, and God's purposes for all of creation. That Jesus is what all of these things are revealed in and what they all revolve around. So the core message here of Colossians is we're talking about growing up. Paul would say to grow up in the Christian faith, to experience all spiritual wisdom and understanding, as we read some last week and we'll read again in the future in this series. For that to happen, one's life must conform wholly around the centrality of Jesus Christ and Jesus only. That there is no wisdom, there is no self-actualization, there is no spiritual understanding, whatever that would mean, apart from Jesus. So let's jump in. We're going to be reading together. You can either follow along on the screen or you can turn in your Bibles if you have them. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to begin here in verse 15. And keep in mind those three ideas that I talked about briefly here in the beginning, and also the idea that everything Paul is writing to the community has a purpose, that none of this is just generic, that Paul is speaking and aiming his words directly at ideas that are harmful for this really young, immature flock. So here we go in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he in everything, excuse me, he might have the supremacy. It's just like that song we just sang. For to you, from you are all things, and to you are all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What a claim. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so last disclaimer here before we jump into some points. I'm probably not going to say anything this morning that you have not heard. That this message from top to bottom is going to be about the person, Jesus Christ, the center of our faith. But the point from which Paul writes is my point this morning. That there is nothing more than and nothing less than Jesus. That we never move beyond Jesus in the Christian faith. That there are certain corners and pockets, particularly of the charismatic church, where the, the talk and the desire almost seem to be always wanting to get to the deeper things. What are the deeper things? What are the deeper things? And I'm here to tell you, in the words of Paul, in chapter 2, which I'm not going to preach this morning, that all the riches of God, the mystery of God, is all found in Jesus. Right. That in the Christian faith, we never move beyond Jesus. And when we have the urge to move beyond Jesus, when we're bored with Jesus, that we need to go back and look again. Maybe our preaching, maybe our singing about Jesus is not doing Jesus justice because we never get to move beyond Jesus. And when we come to the place where we realize that, we won't want to move beyond Jesus because we find our purpose, that everything that is created, as Paul says, visible and invisible, rulers, thrones, authorities, principalities, all of it was created by him for him and only find their purpose in Christ Jesus. So I have three points here this morning about Jesus, all coming from this little poem, and then we'll move on to a couple of other verses here at the end of chapter one as we close. So number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus reveals God the Father. And this was unthinkable to both the Jews, remember in this area, in this whole region of Asia, that there is always some level of blending of Gentiles who were part of the Roman Empire and Jews, devout Jews, that had also been engrafted under and had been conquered by the Roman Empire. So in pretty much every one of Paul's letters, he's writing with some facets he's angled at the Jews and some that are angled at the Gentiles. This was unthinkable to the Jews because no one can see God. I mean, think about it. Throughout all of Jewish history, there had been these pictures of God. The prophets speak for God. We see these, these weird things like burning bushes where God comes and Moses can't even look. He has to take off his shoes in the presence of God. And now the claim is that Jesus in the flesh, who just a couple of decades prior, some of them may have even seen Jesus, was the image of God that he fully revealed God the Father, that verse that I accentuated when I was reading, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. This is an unthinkable claim to them. Paul is pointing at some very specific things. And then we have the Gentiles. We have those who are part of the Roman kingdom. And who do they think is the son of God? Any guesses? Caesar. Caesar is the son of God. It was on their coins. It was on their statues. Of course, he didn't mean it necessarily in the same way that Jesus did, but Caesar was the closest thing to a deity in their society. 
So Paul, by saying Jesus is the image of God, is hitting both of these groups in ways that they were unprepared for. Jesus is the image of God. When God takes on flesh in this life, it doesn't look like a king that we think. It doesn't look like an American president. It doesn't look like a wealthy businessman. It looks like a man who comes humbly, born in a stable, not exalted by any measure of human standards, but one who comes in humility to serve, who preaches the fullness of the kingdom of God, and who does nothing but exalt his father. And this is what Jesus looked like. And that's good news for you and for me. Because if any other person were revealing God, that would be a really scary God. I don't know about you, but I have some sinful facets to my life. And if I were the one that was the image of God, that wouldn't be good news for any of you, depending on what day of the week it is. <laughs> depending on how I woke up, what meals I had had, how I was feeling. But because Jesus is the image of God, it is good news for all of creation, for the whole world, for all of the cosmos. Paul is pushing back against the emperor here, as I've already mentioned, and he's also pushing back against these syncretistic ideas, the blending of religions here. Jesus alone is the image of God. There are not many images of God. Genesis says that we are made in the image of God. In a, an actually more accurate translation would be after the image of God. Jesus is the image of God, and we are made in his likeness. So this is good news for all of us. Number two, Jesus holds together creation and the new creation. Let's just read some of these verses again that we already read. He is the firstborn over all creation. By the way, certain, I can't remember if it's Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, but one of them uses this to say that Jesus is the first created being. And of course, we don't believe that. Jesus is the uncreated one, begotten, not made. So firstborn is not speaking of Jesus being created. Firstborn is speaking of place of priority, not in time, as in God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything else. No, we believe that Jesus is the uncreated one, the pre-existent one who has always and ever will always be part of the Trinity. So firstborn is speaking about place of priority, not a place in time. And it's also speaking to, in Jewish history, what was significant about the first son or the firstborn? Think about Jacob and Esau. Inheritance. He is the firstborn of all creation. In other words, everything that has ever been created or will be is part of Jesus's inheritance. That it is part of his father's gift to him. And that is you and I, the church. Anyways, that was just by way of, it hit me. Firstborn, I don't want anyone to be confused. I don't know what your histories are. I don't know. Maybe, maybe someone in here was raised in the Mormon church. And this is a, a verse that gets twisted all the time. For in him, verse 16, all things were created. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. In other words, all that is created and all that will be created finds its source in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we live in a fallen world, 
So what Paul is not saying here is everything that happens is because Jesus wants it to happen. That's not what Paul's saying. But we know the end. We know that in the book of Revelation, what, what happens at the end? New creation happens where God comes and restores all that is. There will be no more crying. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. That God acts on the fullness of creation and everything that we have experienced will somehow, some way be restored and redeemed. This is the great Christian hope. And Jesus is the Lord of creation, the first creation, and the coming new creation. In him, all things were created, visible and invisible. Paul is pushing back that Jesus is not one of the syncretistic many gods. You know, think back into these societies where and we've all seen movies like Ben-Hur or whatever, Spartacus or whatever, these these movies that are from way, way back when, or even some Native American religion movies that where we, we see um, that so many other religions would worship the gods and they would try and identify what area they needed help in, whether with the weather or they were having a famine, they were having a drought, they needed help in war, whatever it was. They were having women who had problems in childbearing. So they would offer up sacrifices to whatever God it was that they could identify. And Paul is pushing back against this saying, no, no, no. There are not many little G gods that you can manipulate and serve according to what you need to make your life better. There is one God and he is the Lord of all present creation and all future new creation. And his name is Jesus. And by the way, he fully reveals God the Father. And he's the only one who reveals God the Father. So Paul's pushing back against this idea of many gods. He's also pushing back against Gnosticism where they're talking about worshiping angels. No, 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 no. Jesus is not just the greatest angel. Jesus is the God who created the angels. And this is what much of the book of Hebrews is all about. Jesus is supreme over all whether Abraham and Moses, whether angels, whether all creation, Jesus is supreme over all of it. And then, of course, he's also pushing back against the Roman Empire. He's pushing back saying, no, 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 Caesar doesn't own this. God owns this. What Caesar takes by force, God has given first as sheer gift, flowing from the generous life of God himself. So there is no competition between God and Caesar. All authority and all power that Caesar has, he only has because God has allowed him to have it. So Paul, once again, he's pushing back. Everything that he says is pointed against some attack that is coming against this young, immature church. Then there is that verse, verse 18. We're right in the middle of this beautiful poem about Jesus. Paul mentions the church which is really odd. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So quite literally in our world right now, but also in this poem, the church comes right in the middle and bridges creation and new creation. It happens Literally, if you look at the poem, 15 to 20, the church is right in the middle. 
And Paul goes right next into talking about the new creation, the things to come. The church is the bridge between where we live right now in the midst of a broken and fallen world and the new creation that is coming. We live as witnesses to all that we know God has already done in Christ and one day will do for all of us who believe, all of us who are found in Christ. Christ, on the third day, we will celebrate on Easter Sunday. Well, to some extent, we celebrate every Sunday and every day, but particularly, which I believe is the first week of April, we celebrate the resurrection. Why do we celebrate the resurrection? Well, lots of reasons. But one of those reasons is because we believe as Christians, and this is, I, I, I'm not going to try and tell you too much of what you believe, but, but you have to believe this to be a Christian, that the resurrection of Jesus has already happened only to him. And one day is going to happen for all of us. And this is the Christian hope that we believe that what God has already done in Christ, he is going to do for us in fullness. And right now, it is in part. We live in this tension as witnesses in a broken and sinful world, but we are the ones who are always pointing forward to the new creation. We are the people that are pointing to peace and to love and to hope and to faith and to goodness and mercy and all of the things that flow from the heart of God that will be present in fullness among us in the end that right now are only present in part. But the church is the bridge between the current creation and the fullness of the new creation. So right here in the midst of this poem about Jesus, we the church are brought in. And why are we brought in right here? Well, if we go to the end of this chapter, verse 27, now I'm all out of order, but who cares, right? To them, speaking about the Gentiles, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is God making known who he is? How is he revealing his glorious riches to the Gentiles? Christ at work in you, the church. That it is almost impossible for us to talk about Christ in any real meaningful sense without talking about his church. Because most of what God does in the earth can and should be seen initially in the church. Because we are the body of Christ. The body manifests what comes from the head. Christ is the head and we are the body. Number three, if you're taking notes, Jesus is the blueprint for humanity. So Jesus both, as the fully God, fully man, Jesus reveals the Father to us. He is the image of God to us. He also reveals the fullness of humanity. He also re reveals what when a human being is walking in the fullness of what a human being is called to be, it looks like Jesus. When sin and brokenness are void from the human life, it looks like Jesus. And this is also good news for us because Jesus is not just a means for, once again, I've already said this, self-actualization, some kind of spiritual enlightenment. If you, want a more, if you want a more spiritual life, follow Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus shows us what it's like to be fully human. For us to fulfill the purpose of what we are called to become, we follow after Christ. 
that he's not just giving us spiritual good ideas, but Jesus teaches us what it is to live among other human beings in this world in a holy and faithful way. If you want to know what that is, look at the life of Jesus. Look at how Jesus interacted with his disciples. Look at how Jesus interacted with powers. Look at how Jesus interacted with the least of these, with women, with poor, with children, with the social outcasts. Jesus is restoring dignity to all of what it is to be human. So Jesus reveals God the Father. Jesus holds together creation and new creation. And Jesus is the blueprint for humanity. Jesus reveals what it is for us to be fully human. Let's keep reading verse 28. I shut my Bible. I don't know why I did that. Got carried away. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. For this is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, there we are, brought in again, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that had been kept hidden from ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. For he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy of Christ so powerfully at work in me. So what does all this about Christ mean for you and for me? Number one, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is the image of God, then he must be Lord. If Jesus is God, he must be Lord. That Jesus, I said this in, in first service, I don't know, it's kind of a silly idea, but Jesus is not a coupon where we walk through the store and we put everything in the basket that we want for ourselves and for our lives and Jesus makes it cheaper or Jesus makes it accessible for us. Jesus is not an add-on. He's not a coupon. Jesus controls the whole shopping cart. <laughs> that Jesus is Lord. Jesus says whether we get to go shopping or not to begin with. <laughs> yeah, but Jesus doesn't get to be half Lord. We don't get to have what we want of Jesus that makes our lives convenient or gives us the life that we want for ourselves. He's either Lord of our lives or not. And sometimes that will mean that certain things happen in our lives that we think are really great. And other times that will mean Things happen in our lives that are unexplainable to us. Things that are difficult, things that seem, how in the world could this be when I'm following Jesus? And friends, there are certain things that happen in this life that are unexplainable. But in the end, we trust that what has happened to Christ will happen for all of us. And what is that? Jesus stepped into his own creation 
and his own creation killed him. But Jesus did not allow death to have the last word. And for you and for me, when there are things in our lives that are unexplainable, we remember that we serve the one who conquered death through death itself. And that is how we can make sense of the things in this world that are unexplainable. That whatever comes our way, whatever disappointments, whatever tragedies, whatever losses, Jesus is the one who conquered death through death. And in the end, we will be resurrected and be with him. That is the best news possible. If Jesus is God, then he must be Lord. Number two, if Jesus is Lord, a bunch of if-then statements. I didn't even realize I did that. But if-then, we're in English class. Here we go. If the, or That's math class, right? That's high school math or is it English? Who knows? It's been a while, guys. I'm older than I look, I guess. <clears throat> if Jesus is Lord, then our place is in his body, the church. If Jesus is God, he must be Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then our place is in the body, the church. The church are those who live in the present as witnesses to God's future. Think about that. Does our collective life witness to the future that God has for the world? That's a sobering question. Do our lives witness to the fact that all thrones and all powers and everything that was made, visible and invisible, finds its source in Jesus Christ? Is that the kind of community that we are? It is in us, the church, not of course just us Antioch church, but the church, that God reveals to the world what his kingdom is like. And I will add what his father is like. Christianity is not an idea. It must be lived out in real places among real people. And this is why our series called Growing Up Matters. Because maturity matters. Because maturity affects how we live one with another. Matter of fact, if you read Paul's letters, almost all of them point to that at one point or another. He'll talk about spiritual things in pretty much every letter too. But he always gets down to the brass tacks of how we live with one another. Why? Because if Jesus is Lord, it's revealed to the world through his church. And how we act and live with one another is supposed to witness to this poem that we just read about Jesus. Yes. And number three, if we are his church, then our mission is to live toward the new creation. If we are his body, the church, our mission is to live toward the new creation. The resurrection is the guarantee, the deposit of what is to come. And our lives point to that, not by how easy they are, not how, by how blessed we look in society, but how our lives point to the God that is always hopeful, that is always full of love, overflowing, abounding in mercy and goodness and compassion and concern for the people around us. And this is what our lives are meant to point to. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is part of the church. He is a new creature, a new creation, a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. But also, 1 John 3, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. 
But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we live in this tension of we have been born as new creatures, but we also have not yet seen the fullness. And we don't yet know exactly what it will look like in the future, but we stand here presently living in the body of Christ, witnessing to God's future. And through prayer and worship and the proclamation of the gospel and coming to the table and caring for one another, we pull that future into the present and we make it visible for the world to see. Because in verse 27, as we've already read twice, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is how all of this beauty that Paul talks about found in Christ, which of course we believe to be true. How do we know? Because Christ is at work in us, revealing the hope of glory that is coming in fullness in the future. Church, if you would stand with me, Aaron, you can come. We're going to prepare our hearts to move to the table. I told this story, and I thought, man, I'm not going to do that. I almost cried first service, <laughs> uh, which is why I don't tell stories a lot, because I guess I get sentimental and emotional. But my dad's mom in 2009, when I was uh, a senior in college, was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and we called her Grammy. My Grammy was, she was a saint. She was holiness Pentecostal, who wore her hair in a bun, and prayed for seven minutes when, when it was her time to pray for the meal. Oh, yeah, that was the only time she prayed as short as seven minutes. I mean, seriously, when we would sleep over her house, she would be up at five in the morning, which was just crazy because she didn't work. She didn't work, and she was up at five in the morning praying, crying. Out. I mean, you know, I know Pastor Jade's mom was Korean, and he's talked about how she prayed like that too. But my Grammy was one of the holiest people I ever knew. And I was between study abroad trips my senior year of college when I got the news and I saw her one time during that season. And when I saw her, she was basically in hospice. Um, and she said, the, the one thing I remember that she said is, Jonathan, stay close to Jesus. Whatever you do, if you go into ministry or don't, whatever you, wherever you live, stay close to Jesus. And I'm here to tell you today that at the moment, I'm close to Jesus, but only because he has drawn close to me. That there have been times in life where I have not done anything to stay close to Jesus, and yet he has stayed close to me. That Jesus is the one who, because he is Lord, it is good news for all of us because he doesn't create a world and then say, figure it out. He creates a world and when we mess it up, he enters in. He takes on flesh and comes and walks among us. As Eugene Peterson said, he moves into the neighborhood to reveal what God is like and to make a way for us. And he reconciles us back to the Father. Wherever you are today, we don't move past Jesus, but that is good news because of the kind of God that he is. So as we come and we receive of these elements and we take the little cracker and we receive of the juice, be reminded that this Christian journey, this walk with Jesus should never get old because he is alive and he is inexhaustible in beauty and riches and glory 
and mercy and peace and love and compassion, that we will never exhaust any of it in this life or the next. So as we come forward and you hold these elements in your hand, be aware that this Jesus, even when you draw far from him, he will never not be near to you. So come out, if you will, on the left side of your aisles and uh, take the elements and we will go back to our seats and receive together.